podcast where we talk about our favorite foods and where they come from. This week's episode is on honey. We're going to chat about the history, the myths, uses, and finally finish out with the sampling of two different recipes using honey, one from antiquity, and one from today. So get comfy, grab a snack, and get ready for History Between Between Bites. Okay, episode two. This is wild. Um, I mean, I kind of episode three, just because we had episode zero. But here we are, recording again. And, uh... Getting honey, better every time. Hopefully. <laughs> we have more equipment every time. <laughs> so... I mean, you can hear me this time. This is true. This is true. Uh, so, so yeah. So, we picked honey as the, the second one, right? It's probably one of the oldest ingredients. That's so, why I chose olive oil. I figured we'd just go hard for the first episode. Yeah, I was like, what are the oldest things that we can think of? And we're like, olive oil and honey. Maybe that's because, like, we're, well, I'm Jewish and you're a little Jewy. And, like, you're like, oh, olive oil and honey, for sure, the oldest ever. But it turns out they are kind of the oldest ever. So we weren't completely wrong or you're, biased. You're Jewish and I'm Jew-ish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then with, like, the Mediterranean, because I'm just like, well, are we being super biased that, like, it's the oldest thing? But honey turns out to be, like, really global. So that's, it's kind of cool that... Even though we may think of honey as being this Mediterranean type thing, uh, it really has uses everywhere. So, should I get into it? Yeah, let's go. Okay. Um, So, long before our attachment to sugar, uh, high fructose corn syrup, uh, the global sweetener was honey. This innocuous amber syrup had our ancestors climbing to perilous heights and braving its braving the sting of the bees just to sweeten their food. But this isn't the only use for honey, or reasons our ancestors dared to tango with the honeybee. In fact, the uses of honey go well beyond making that Earl Grey taste better, which it does make the Earl Grey taste better. Oh my god, so good in Earl Grey. (laughs) Yes. I used to do sugar and lemon in my Earl Grey, and now I do honey and cream, and I'm just like, this is so much better. (laughs) You tapped into the, like older ancestors with the honey and cream versus the colonizer ancestors. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Exactly. Um, but honey has a lot of other uses. So there's medicinal uses for it. Um, preservatives, they used it for embalming. Um, honey was really like a fundamentally component to the story of humanity. Embalming? Embalming. Yeah. So, uh, in Egypt, which we'll get to, but right. Mummification, uh, they would put, the body parts that they took out of the mummies to hold in jars, they would put those in honey. Total sense with like the antibacterial properties. Well, and like it, I mean, it's, I say a preservative, the embalming aspect, it's because it's a preservative uh, that the idea, especially with uh, pharaohs, right? You would put them in honey so that they would stay good so that the heart and liver and all the things that they were putting in the jars next to them could be used in, in the next life. Can you imagine swapping out those jars by accident? <laughs> I mean, the honey would still be good. Yeah, but like, 
you're going to get a little bit of honey, you know, something sweet to throw on your toast or your spelt, whatever. <laughs> and then you're just scooping it out and you put it on there and you're like, huh, there's like this extra meaty flavor. Oh, maybe that's where we got chopped liver. <laughs> oh, Someone no. had to try it first. I put Nana's heart in my cupboard. Oh, I mean, we put Nana's remains on Mantle on mantelpieces still, so it's not all that weird. Yeah, but we weren't eating Nana's ashes on the mantelpiece unless Nana was a mummy. This is <laughs> this is true. It always goes back to mummies, but that's very it's different. Mummies all the way down, always. But so one even suggested that uh, because of this really old story and connection to honey, that honey is even one of the staples that has made us what we are today, and that's kind of has its own space in this really interesting story of like how uh, civilization started and how just humans started to be human. So let's dive into the colony that colonized us. It's nice to not be the colonizer for once. For once, for once, yes, and we apologize. Uh, <laughs> but so the honey de- uh, the honeybee is indigenous to Europe, North Africa, South and Southeast Asia, and even Central America. So they're from everywhere. Yeah. And you, we would think that, I don't I keep getting this image of like Pangea in my head and being like, oh, bees existed during the time of Pangea. Yeah, but they were probably the size of like a Volvo. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine the honey? <laughs> Would Can they even imagine the sting? Would, yeah, would they even make honey though? Like what kind of, the plants would have had to be huge. Yeah, like we had um, all sorts of gigantic insects, like dragonflies, that we could probably have ridden like horses if we existed. <laughs> I love, I love where this takes us. Yeah, like we have, um, what do they call it? Megafauna. Yeah. So, like, there's an entire tree that is going extinct now because they need the giant land sloth to actually propagate, and they don't have that anymore because we don't have giant land sloths. Nice. But you're right. So honey, honeybees being indigenous to all of these different regions, and then the uses for bee products, namely beginning with beeswax, bees pollen, um, propolis, or honey glue, um, have all played into the narrative of human survival. So I don't know exactly this honey glue thing. It's basically, it's not, it's the stuff that the larva would eat, basically. So you're, it's, it's baby food for bees. (laughs) I was going to say, like, bee amniotic fluid? Kind of. Yeah, yeah. But so beeswax was also often used for candle making, making seals. Propolis is used for solves and for wound care, for abscesses, right? Because it could seal them over. While often used for things like candles and tinctures and salves and medicines and things, uh, these products were also found in their culinary milieu. So bee pollen, for instance, is highly nutritious and would have be used as a dietary supplement, namely for its high protein content. I mean, you see it all the time in like the healthy food stores Mm -hmm. and stuff, like where you get smoothies, you can always add bee pollen. Well, and it's not, there's not enough of it to make a meal out of it. So that's why it would have been used as a supplement, right? It would have been something to sort of add to your to your diet as opposed to it being a meal where honey itself could yeah. be a meal. So it's really interesting that that uh, comes into play. But you're here to look to talk about honey, right? And while the honey bee byproducts are often included in the history of honey, uh, we really want to focus on that delicious syrup alone. 
So some of the earliest known references for the use of honey comes to us from cave paintings. So the spider caves in Valencia, Spain, that are dated around 8000 BCE, contain images of bees uh, surrounding humans, and the humans are harvesting honey from the hive. How did they manage to do that at that point? Like, even beekeepers are still trying to innovate in the best practices for that? Yeah, so the... The beginnings of bee use, and I'll go into it, is really just this, the hunting of wild honey, right? It's this natural, there's no colonizing the bees yet. There's no beekeeping, right? There's no uh, methods for it. It's really just people climbing and reaching in. And that's what you see in this cave painting, right? It's just Ow. this person. Yes, yes. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's just this person reaching into this hive, and there's bees around it around him. So clearly, that's the method is just to to go and grab. But yeah, so this might be surprising to some, but the timeline of evidence uh, really is on par with what we expect. So this eight thousand BCE. Uh, moment for the caves is really kind of indicative of what we expect. So the history of honey has a sub-history or an origin narrative that uh, aligns with the agricultural revolution, which wasn't a revolution so much as a millennia-long shift from a carefree life of hunter-gatherer to the so great patriarchal system of farming and agriculture. Which changed literally everything about human society. Absolutely. That's when we start to see the change from animism to more like powerful and overarching gods and humanistic even like taking on a human form yeah we see civilizations we see town building people stop moving around at this point because you can't be nomadic and also have a farm i wonder if this is where we start to see more of humans genetic history becoming less diverse as well interesting i don't know that but that's an interesting sort of side quest to go on. Because when we were tribal, one of the big things was you didn't marry inside your own tribe. You didn't have relations with people inside your own tribe. You traded like yep. spouses between neighboring tribes. So it kept genetic diversity. You can't really do that as much if you're in a town. But there are also more people. But we also know the royals. Yeah. <laughs> The Habsburg chin, everybody. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe this is also co- like coincides with uh, limitations to the gene pool, really, <laughs> and, and not divesting your interests better. <laughs> but what a delicate way of saying that. Absolutely. But, yeah, so we see the, that honeybees has this uh, overlapping moment with the agricultural revolution uh, because they're great pollinators, right? The honeybee made certain crops viable, and these crops were then cultivated in high bee zone uh, areas, leading to sedentary life. So you have basically bees would pollinate a region, a, a particular plant. That plant would grow more abundantly in a certain region. Humans have eyes. And so we would pay attention to those things because we were able to look up from phones back then. (laughs) But, you know, so you would start to notice these things and then you would cultivate those in those regions where high bee populations are because you want more of it. One of these is wheat. And there's a whole side quest that we can talk about wheat being the reason why we are who we are the same way we talk about bees, that honey and the honeybee and wheat together is really what civilized us we did not cultivate wheat wheat cultivated us we'll get there and and bees play into this into this moment that they really are the ones who 
keep us put and start, you know, building civilization. So I'm okay with putting civilization and human history into the hands of bees and food, not aliens. <laughs> but honestly, they probably did a better job than we would have done. Absolutely. I've seen history. It's not great. It's not ideal. <laughs> but but no, so so honeybees tend to have this uh, this correlation that a lot of people like to look at to see the ways in which the agricultural revolution happened. So along with the cave paintings, uh, bees and bee honey have been written about in cuneiform, which is one of the earliest forms of writing. Egyptian myths include the honeybee. So Egyptians made a claim that the god Ra was responsible for the honeybee. The myth goes that Ra wept and his tears turned into bees. That's a lot of crying. It is a lot of crying. Well, I mean, he's a god, so I suppose... He's, yeah, but even he would have to stop for, like, water breaks. I mean, maybe, because they're also kind of personified, so, yeah. <laughs> I'm so thirsty. For sure. I'm I mean, they so have tired. They have the Nile. He would have been fine. <laughs> Honey has also had an influence over my ancient Savta and Saba, where the Semitic peoples, or who would be Jews, um, associated... W- Bees and honey with the female goddess of fertility, maternity, love, and of course, war. Um, and this goddess's name was Astarte. And yes, ancient Jewish ancestors had a goddess figure, uh, but that is maybe for another episode. Or a different podcast. For sure, different podcast. Yeah, but so, so Semitic peoples again connecting it to this female goddess, which is also interesting, right? Because fertility. Maternity, love, and war for this goddess, of course, has connections to every god of war who's a woman. It's kind of, you know. I mean, I've seen a really pissed off mom or five. <laughs> and uh, I can see where people went, oh, she's so maternal and loving and caring and look at her with her baby. And oh, God, I got to run. Or we're just dramatic. And that's how they associate it with her. Like, war is so much work. It's got to be a woman. And there's so much blood. (laughs) People can bleed for five days and the war is not over. And you're like, that's a woman. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many moving parts. It's so complicated. Honey. Yeah, exactly. Uh, But yeah, so in addition to uh, this connection to a goddess, uh, the promised land, right? Israel has also been called the land of milk and honey. And they, you know, we, they associate it with uh, fertility and life-giving characteristics. So honey has also been associated with Vedic gods. So um, calling Vishnu, Krishna, and Inra Madhavas. I'm going to butcher this, but it means honey-born ones. So the idea that these gods um, came, were literally born out of the sweetness of honey. Greeks thought that honey was the nectar of the gods and to be eaten with ambrosia. Oddly enough, though, Greeks, like, ambrosia for the Greeks is kind of like trick cereal. What? Uh, so, uh, like the, for kids? It's sort of. So the word ambrosia, if you break up the Greek, the a, right, the a at the beginning means without. So same thing with like atheist, right? A yeah. is without. So, it's without something, and brotos is what that is. So, um, and brotos means mortals. So, literally, the word ambrosia means not for mortals. So, I just imagine this like ancient commercial for ambrosia, where this like disnified Eros, which we know he can, they can disnify Greek gods. It has been done, but just like sits there with his ambrosia and just says, "Silly humans, ambrosias for gods." <laughs> and then all the humans like obnoxiously cry to a laugh track, but. 
I digress. <laughs> there has to be a laugh track for something like that. Uh, but honey is uh, even connected to Islam and in the Quran. The belief that Muhammad made bees for humans to use for medicine uh, is in their sacred text. So this different kind of connection where as opposed to these earlier ones where it's uh, fertility or it's for, um, you know, life giving or food, then we have a really uh, specific religious connection to, it's to medicine. It's interesting that it's, in that case, it's a male form providing honey and not providing it for these traditional methods, but for yeah. medicine specifically. I mean, especially because so much of Islam comes from uh, the earlier Judeo-Christian tradition, and really, I feel like as someone who's studied religion, so like I'm not talking out of my ass here, a lot of the spaces within the Quran and the things that Muhammad wrote down from a historical perspective, not a religious one, uh, really tap into Judaism a bit more than Christianity. And so this notion that it wouldn't also be the land of milk and honey and these sorts of connections, especially because he's also in the Arabian Peninsula, he's yeah. in the same region as the as the Torah talks about. So it's really kind of interesting to see that it is explicitly like he gave it to his followers for medicine, but could also indicate the different kind of ideology within Islam. Islam is not a violent tradition, but early Islam did was the history of early Islam is one of war. Yeah. And so maybe having that correlation between higher number of war related things you need the honey for medicine, but then again, it's odd that it doesn't connect to well, it wouldn't connect to a female god. No, because, because they're like they're monotheistic. They're aggressively monotheistic, and the traditions that they've come out of have been aggressively monotheistic mm-hmm. for at least six hundred years. With in the case of Christianity, versus twenty six hundred years in the case of Judaism. So these interesting connections, though, and I'm sure that those ideas still kind of trickle into all of these traditions. This idea of honey as being uh, the sweetness of something new or, you know, life-giving properties, medicine, things like that. So it's kind of interesting how all these different places have that and can, can kind of connect their gods to it as well. Kind of yeah. puts honey on this in this elevated space than other foods. A spoonful of honey helps the god mythology go down. Absolutely. <laughs> sure it does. <laughs> um, so how does one get honey, right? You were asking about... How are they doing this without uh, knowledge of, of beekeeping? And so wild honey uh, is hunted, right? So in the wild, a honey hunter must find a hive, reach into it, and extract the comb. Uh, this sounds easy enough until you factor in that most bees make their hive high in the trees or on cliff sides to avoid predators, i.e. humans, and that honey hunters uh, would have to be strong, agile, and brave to be able to do this. But once the hunt was successful, the honey would have been consumed raw, most likely. Uh, this is, of course, part of the appeal of honey to our ancestors, right? Honey is the perfect low-maintenance delicacy, as it can be consumed raw or cooked um, and in, put into different dishes, and it has a shelf life of, like, forever. So you don't have to worry about it going bad ever. Uh, really, though, in terms of the shelf life, too, archaeologists have found pots of honey dating to thousands of years ago that are still edible. Who decided to try that? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know who. Jar. I pulled it out of a grave. 
It's full of what appears to be a syrup. I'm going to taste it. Well, I'm wondering if they were able to tell that it was still edible without actually eating it. However, the most notable one is King Tut's tomb, which dates to 2,000 years ago. And you know those mofos tried that because that's... They were eating the mummies. Of course they tried the honey. (laughs) Didn't it? It wasn't like... I mean, I know there's like the idea of the curse and I should know this as as a historian a little better, but I'm pretty sure that like, I know they're all dead now, but I'm pretty sure that... A bunch of them died. A bunch of them died. And maybe it wasn't a curse. Maybe it was... It wasn't the honey. The honey there's, was still good. <laughs> there's a there's an idea that King Tut's curse, quote unquote, was like a massive fungal infection that got into their lungs. I have heard that. And then also there was um, also a myth about something to do with the mosquitoes, right? So it'd be malaria yeah. because there was mosquito markings on, on some of the people who died early on. Let's be real here. Just don't do that. Don't even try to look at a grave. Like... <laughs> You can go look at gray stones. Yeah, but not if they're two miles under water. No, no. Don't do that. Don't, don't do, do that. that. There's videos for that. We can CGI replicate it. You don't need to see it. Yeah. Leave the ghosties alone. Leave sunken ships alone. <laughs> just just a quick list of things do not do with dead people. Don't eat them. <laughs> don't eat them if they're alive either. But especially don't eat them. Don't go digging up their graves. Don't go through their tombs, which are booby-trapped. That's kind of a really big keep out sign. We there, stick to that one. There's a really interesting um, passage about the plague that says not even to like wear um, things from a dead body that had died from the plague. And I always ask my students this. I'm like, why would people, and I'm going to ask you, why would people take the clothes off of the dead bodies of people who are plague victims? I can see like a number of reasons. Everything from like, I need these clothes to survive all the way up to, but that was my grandma and I want her shawl. Okay, exactly. Every time I ask my students and like, because they're young and they don't like quite see the world in terms of of loss, I guess. Yeah. A lot of them haven't dealt with those kinds of losses yet. Yeah. That's fine. That's a thing that happens. But I was telling that, you know, they're like, oh, well, yeah, like you would like, well, for people who are going to steal things or if you needed clothes or whatever. And I was like, perhaps, but there's also heirlooms. I was like, so what if it's like grandma's shawl or a necklace that she wore or certain earrings or bracelet or, you know, something that was your mother's, right? You can't even take your parents' rings off of them when they die. And so I was trying to tell them that the impact of the plague, I know we're going off sidetrack here, but that the impact of the plague wasn't just the death of people. It was also the death of their things, which erodes the memory of people, and that sort of kills them twice. And this is the this is prior to germ theory. Like this is prior yeah. to us knowing what caused this kind of disease. Um, so you really couldn't take the things that would have been like metals and mm-hmm. stuff like that, like the rings, and used those. And Interest- like, well, these will be fine. Yeah, interesting though. This is comes from an Islamic source. Um, not from a European source. So the Islamic sources had a slightly better grasp of uh, medicine, medical knowledge, scientific sort of approaches to the plague. There was still very much a religious idea to it. But the Islamic world was a little better equipped to say things like, maybe you should just keep your ass at home and wear a mask. Weird. Kind of a thing. Um, then, then, Christ- then the Christian Europe. Things never change, guys. But- <laughs> History doesn't repeat itself. 
just rhymes. Often rhymes. Yes. But so you, we would see, we see sources coming out of the Islamic world. It's like, you don't want to cross contaminate with these things. Like you want to stay in isolation. If you live in spaces that are more open air, you're not going to get as infected. Don't go into closed confines where Europe is just like, everyone needs to pray together and beat themselves together. And then we're going to walk around and beat ourselves in public. Those are flagellants. And... Uh, kill all the cats that are killing the rats yeah, 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 that are yeah, carrying yeah. the fleas that have the plague. <laughs> yes. But somehow we've gotten far and away from honey. So <laughs> we will come back to honey. So other than the wild honey hunters, right? Soon enough, the inevitable man uh, pushed out the bee hunter in favor of the beekeeper. So now we see a an industry kind of beginning. So a much easier and safer way to harvest honey was beekeeping. Beekeeping origins are attributed to India and Egypt. However, scholars really just wonder if it's an issue of survival of evidence that beekeeping was a more global phenomenon based on the ubiquity of the honeybee. So the idea that right India and Egypt have really good sources, they and they were kept alive, especially in Egypt, because everything's dry, nothing rots, really. And so we have sources that talk about beekeeping there versus having sources of beekeeping, say, in South America or Mesoamerica, because there wasn't a writing system. Yeah, they were at that oral point. tradition. And exactly. These things along. Exactly. Would have been something that wasn't written down. And then India has this incredible history of basically writing down and illustrating everything. Yeah, absolutely. And so in uh, in Egypt, evidence for beekeeping tells a really interesting story. So images of beekeepers taking honey from the hive and putting it into jars are found in the Temple of the Sun in Egypt. There's evidence of boiling and smoking, filling, pressing, and, and sealing honey, which apparently is a number of things I did not think that you would do with honey, but it's... Um, I want to smoke some honey. I would love to. <laughs> I don't know if you're talking about food-wise or if you like... No, no, food-wise. Food-wise. I want to, like, stick some honey in a smoker and see how it goes. That sounds amazing. It really does. That's like going to be on Patreons. Let us buy a smoker. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> uh, they can't They can't be that expensive. But, yeah, I mean, we definitely need to buy a smoker anyways. But smoking honey sounds lovely. So these beekeepers in Egypt were called sealers of honey, which is, like, a really cool title. Um, and they were actually held in high esteem by Egyptian pharaohs. I mean... Yeah. Yeah, because otherwise you got to climb on the side of a cliff and reach your hand in and do it yourself. No thanks. And they need that honey for preserving their organs so they can actually go to the afterlife. This is true. And because pharaohs are probably going to be eating lots of honey, too, at a higher rate than anybody else because access. So, of course, they're going to be held in high esteem. It's the only thing that's sweet in the ancient world. What else am I going to drizzle on my figs that my... 15th wife is going to feed me. I'm not even hungry, but that made me hungry. <laughs> like honey drizzled on some figs sounds delicious. We still have the cardamom orange honey that we made. Oh, we may be using that later. <laughs> and I have some dried apricots. Nice. Well, so. this might, we might need to pause for a cause at some point. But in India, beekeeping was popularized roughly 2000 BCE, uh, but it was short lived there. And by short-lived, I mean, you know, it lasted for 1,800 years. Oh, just that little bit. <laughs> yeah. But it fell into decline in favor of sugar due to religious morals. Oh, right, because 
Jainists especially don't eat honey. Yes. So Buddhists and Jainists practice nonviolence and abstain from harming animals. And so the thought is that beekeeping depleted bees of their sustenance, and also some bees died in the process, uh, created this sort of moral dilemma for for these communities. That makes sense. And you see the the similar argument with like vegan sources Mm -hmm. that are anti-honey. A lot of vegans are like, well, we're really only taking the excess, so we'll still eat honey. But it's like a huge debate in that particular community. It was a huge debate for me. I'm like switching to like a predominantly plant-based diet because apparently that's healthy. I'm so excited about being healthy. Um, and honey was a conversation for a second because I was like, technically, it's an animal byproduct. And then I decided that that's stupid and I make up my own goddamn rules. So I'm eating honey. There you go. <laughs> so, yes, um, not to mention that my daughter picked the most delicious honey I have ever tried in my life. She chose wildflower honey. Wildflower honey is amazing. So it's the first time I've had that honey. And I'm kind of obsessed with it. It's like slightly sweeter. And it doesn't have, there's an aftertaste of like Costco honey. That's what I'm used to eating. Costco honey is great. But there's a bit of an aftertaste that this doesn't have. And that's nice. When you go home with me, whenever that is, I'm going to take you to the farmer's market I love. Because there's a beekeeper that brings in her honey. And she usually has like specifics where they either harvested from these particular plants or she infuses them with some of those flavors. So like... She used to do this blueberry honey where they actually pulled from the blueberry plants and she would add in like macerated blueberries. That sounds amazing. So good. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, I I gave my daughter, because I'm not using her name yet, um, I gave her a choice. There was orange blossom, clover, or wildflower, and she chose the wildflower. So, but that means we have, we have, can mix it up when I go through that small jar of honey in like a year because no, I'll, I need to start eating honey more. But it is really good for like allergies and things too, especially if it's local. Yeah. So, um, and she likes it. So we're kind of playing with things. She likes to try, um, she's four by the way, but so she likes to try salt and sugar, like plain on her finger. And now I've shown her honey. And so she's kind of like, it's really interesting. And, and it's not from a honey stick from the synagogue. So she's really excited that there's this whole jar of honey that she doesn't just get on Rosh Hashanah, That's which is amazing. fun. Yeah. Can we talk about Rosh Hashanah now? We do for like a second. Cool. So, uh, but yeah, so images, an image of cross-cultural influence as far as honey comes from Hittite tablets. These show evidence of beekeeping as well. And that paired with the evidence of beekeeping in the Middle East and in Israel reveal that the Hittite culture was probably this junction point between India and Babylon, um, Syria, Greece, and Rome. So like this east-west sort of um, connection that the Hittite was probably the space where beekeeping information went through. So it's kind of fun to, to look at that. Uh, but also China and early Mesoamerican civilizations also show evidence of beekeeping. Slightly less, of course, in Mesoamerica because of the types of sources. Um, and then the Chinese stuff we'll get into a little bit later as well. Interesting, fast forwarding a bit in the history timeline, the Catholic Church has a really interesting connection to beekeeping and recognize beekeeping as a lucrative industry. You mean the Catholic Church looked at something shiny and gold and said, <laughs> oh, I can make money off of that. And I want to make more. Uh, yeah. And so there's monasteries where arguably people that have lots of time on their hands uh, when they're not 
recreating Bibles, uh, became prolific beekeepers. Um, they used the wax for their nighttime study and undoubtedly their efforts in reproducing scripture. Uh, but before the invention, at, so reproducing scripture before the invention of the European printing press, um, honey, however, was used as a source of income for these monasteries. So monks would sell the honey. But more interestingly is that these monasteries would make mead with the honey. And they were so successful that some of the monasteries were known more for their brewing prowess than for their dedication to piety and the divine. I'm shocked. <laughs> shocked. Mm -hmm. No, the oldest brewery in Europe is a monastery. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. And it's primarily beer, but like beer brewing and mead kind of went hand in hand because it's a very similar process. You're just using like honey as the main part of your wort, as opposed to, like, barley and malt. And yep. at the time, hops wouldn't have been used until we get a little bit later. Yeah, hops isn't even really used in German beer now. It shouldn't be, because it's awful. <laughs> yes. Um, That's my hot take of the day. I don't like hops in beer. Uh, well, it's really funny, because... Um, IPAs and double IPAs are super popular here in Southern California. And uh, yeah, they're gross. I don't really drink beer anyways, and I'm certainly not drinking an IPA. But even my husband won't drink an IPA. He says that it tastes like what he expects bong water to taste like. <laughs> He's like, it's too much. Uh, but yeah, and then interesting, when Stone Brewery tried to open up in Germany, Instead of embracing the culture of beer there and trying to sort of, you know, incorporate things. The American did it. The American did it. They opened up this giant brewery and said, we're going to bring you American beer because you don't know anything about good beer. And it failed in Germany because, one, Germans aren't used to drinking beer with hops in it. And, two, they're not used to drinking beer that has shit like coffee and chocolate and apricots and sour beers. That, like, it made no sense. And so... But if yeah. you marketed it as an alcoholic like soda, you do much better. A lot of sour beers here in Europe are marketed as like alcoholic sour sodas, and they do really well. Yeah, and if they had an American it and been like, "I'm bringing you democracy," I'm bringing you, I mean beer. <laughs> I'm bringing you real beer, yeah. Germans, the yeah. arguable progenitors of beer. Yeah, joke. Uh, but yeah, so. Mead and beer and honey, right? So finally, honey is a food, right? So since since we're on a food podcast, of course. So honey has a long history of being used as a food source. And it was used in different recipes around the world. One of the earliest known cookbooks, and I believe that we talked a little bit about this on your episode, but it's from this Roman named Marcus Gaius Apicius. I'm just going to call him Apicius for forever. Um, but he was a culinary expert and advisor to the Roman emperor Tiberius and Augustus. Uh, and he it contains within his book um, all sorts of recipes. And since there's, I mean, they're not, I don't know, recipes kind of a, a weird word for what they are. It's, it's a proto-recipe. I can't wait to do the recipe episode where we talk about how recipes have developed. Yes. Um, and this that, that this conversation will make more sense then. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily a recipe like we would think of it now. It's a recipe how a kid would think of a recipe. Yes. Here are all the ingredients. Figure it out. Pretty much, yeah. But in this book, there's this sort of recipe for honey cakes 
And I think that's what we're going to be uh, making today, which is super exciting. Uh, but this dessert was certainly a fan favorite amongst, uh, among Greeks and Romans. Uh, and even has a spotlight moment in Virgil's Aeneid, where Aeneas's guide feeds Cerberus, so the three-headed dog in Hades. They so feed them uh, honey cakes to put them to sleep. So if you are ever in the perils of Hades and the underworld, bring honey cakes with you. I mean, it sounds like Cerberus enjoys them, and he's a very good boy anyway. <laughs> this is true. Well, Cerberus means spotted. Yep. So so Great Hades. Cake. Yes. Yeah, so Hades, the the god of the underworld, named his dog the three headed. Hell like hellhound spot. Yep. <laughs> and he is a good boy. That gives a whole new meaning to that kid's book, Sea Spot Run. <laughs> Surprise! I got it. Sea Spot chased the damned soul back into Tartarus. Wee! Yes, right? Or, like, I just imagine, like, Persephone being able to, like, scratch his belly and be like, who's a good boy? Can you imagine a drunk Persephone just, like, sobbing because she's like, I've only got two hands and he's got three (laughs) heads! Yeah, she gets that from her mom, the sobbing, at least. (laughs) Her mom just goes into wailing traumatics every six months of the year. (laughs) I love how this this like whole episode has been much more about mythology, uh, but the Mediterranean at large uh, ate honey. So mo- most cultures around the Mediterranean, uh, archaeologists have found twenty seven hundred year old caramelized honey in a fennel tart in King Midas's burial place in Western Turkey. I need it. Well, I mean, maybe not again. We already talked about not I'm eating. Not, not that. Things. I need the recipe for that. Yeah, I like caramelized honey and fennel tart. That sounds amazing. It does sound amazing. I want to try that because fennel can either be really savory or really sweet. But if you go really sweet, you have to avoid like the licorice taste. Mm-hmm. But the, I feel like the caramelized honey would help adjust that out of the awful, I'm just eating Jägermeister. Oh, yeah, no. Vibe. I think that that's why I'm on the fence about fennel is because I don't like black licorice flavor. Also, fenugreek kind of tastes like if licorice and maple syrup had a baby. So just be prepared for that. It's not terrible, but it's very sweet. It makes you smell sweet, too. It's kind of strange. Anyways, side notes for people who may or may not be feeding tiny humans. Uh, But so honey consumption is even evident in Western and Eastern Europe. So and these are pre-Christian communities in uh, in Britain. And so people in the UK also called Britain the Honey Isle, uh, which is super interesting. That's but, adorable. Yeah, but this means that like Druids and Celts of Ireland and Britain and Gaul, which is now France, were all indulging in honey at this time. I mean, a lot of them were also like mead-brewing communities. Absolutely. Celts brewed mead. Um, you've had Vikings far to the north, mm-hmm. like in the Orkney Isles. They were probably trading like reindeer meats and furs and things like that for honey from further south. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because there was really robust trade all over those isles. And just to give like a tiny bit of background in this area, at the at like the early 10th century, give or take, so from like 900 to 1100 CE, you are going to end up having like, I think Scotland itself was like five different countries at the time. So you had the Orkney Isles way to the north, which are part of northern Scotland now. Um, and then you had Strathclyde and Alapa, which was, Alapa was what's now Scotland 
particularly in the um, Edinburgh area, because Edinburgh was its main city at the time. Its its capital was Inverness, mm-hmm. but its main city for trade was Alapa. Makes sense. Or, excuse me, Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you had, did I already mention Strathclyde? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. Brain is not braining. You had Moray, which was kind of situated um, to the west and north of where you're going to find, like, Alapa in the main area. So you had this whole constellation of different countries that were constantly trading with each other and fighting with each other because that's what they did. Always. But they had these major port cities and major trade routes and areas. Uh, And then, of course, you had London, or at the time, Londinium, that was (laughs) held by the Romans, Uh and then wasn't held by the Romans, and then was again, Mm -hmm. and then it wasn't. And it was aggressively no longer held by the Romans. Yes. It's a whole thing. It is a whole thing. But anyways, that's where you would have found honey kind of perpetuating. Is like all of these southern areas would have been much more palatable for beekeeping. Mm -hmm. So when you see evidence of things like mead and wine and beer brewing, into the far north, you're probably seeing evidence of trade more than evidence of beekeeping in that area. Yeah, absolutely. Which is also really fascinating to start talking about notions of globalization and trade routes in these earlier centuries where we it's it, we see now as globalized, right? Because mm-hmm. again, I can like switch a different computer like program on and I can literally speak to someone across the world. Yeah. And that's our level of globalism. But trade routes are these... We had people traveling the Silk Road from the British Isles Yes, in the 900s. Yes. Like. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, the Silk Road is just going to be a constant in this podcast, too, I'm sure. The but Silk Road is just the background for this podcast. Well, it's the background for early human history, so <laughs> of course. But Eastern European communities, um, such as the Slavs, Scandinavians, and uh, Germanic people all used honey to flavor uh, their brewed beverages. So again, uh, looking at communities who uh, mead is found, just like yeah. you were talking about. Um, and while Europeans in the mid- Middle Ages probably prioritized honey for mead, they would also have cooked it into breads and cakes and would have incorporated it into different sauces. Um, honey was used in these regions as a preservative for meat, fruit, and eggs. These foods would have been packed in the honey, and then the honey would have been eaten with or incorporated into the dish. And this is thought to be where the um, sort of inclusion of sweet and savory dishes together started. I now want to do like a honey garlic chicken. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds amazing. It does sound amazing. And then African communities, right, because we're speaking globally. Mm -hmm. So not just Northern Africa, because again, Egypt is Africa, but other African communities also use honey to sweeten their porridge. So most of the communities are sub-Saharan and indicate just how global the honeybee is. Mm-hmm. Since the northern and sub-Saharan uh, Africa weren't even connected until the discovery and use of camel somewhere around the 5th century. Uh, that's BCE. But it wouldn't even become an active tradeway until the 4th century CE. So the fact that we see evidence predating this connection between northern and uh, southern or sub-Saharan Africa, and you see honey being used sub-Saharan, it really shows that the honeybee was also something that lived and um, survived in That's southern regions of Africa. part of where sweet porridge started becoming a very common poor food yeah. in the American South is because of the slave trade. Probably. We had people from these countries that had used honey and other sweeteners 
in their porridges and in their foods. We owe so much of our history to Africa, just at large. Like, there's so many things in the narrative of how we are here today that is rooted from the Nile yeah, and is rooted from sub-Saharan Africa and West Africa, specifically, where the transatlantic slave trade happened. And that's not something that we could take credit for. That's their culture surviving despite being yeah. enslaved. I mean, we recently have talked a little bit not not in depth, but we've talked a little bit about how African American diaspora has spread as far and wide as it has. So I'm from the American South, and I love Southern cuisine, and so much of that is so integrally tied, integrally, I don't know, integrally tied into uh, African American cuisine. Absolutely, and it's just it's fascinating to look at it from that perspective mm-hmm. and to recognize that I owe pretty much all of my favorite dishes in the world (laughs) to the African-American diaspora. Absolutely. And it's also interesting to think that, like, they're all eating honey, (laughs) right? (laughs) Of all of these things that we're talking about, like, honey becomes this thing that almost every human palate in the world was able to experience, which is insane, right? Even moving east and into India, right, um, they... They were eating honey there. Um, evidence, again, isn't extravagant as it is in Europe and the Mediterranean, mostly due to that phasing out process because of the Buddhist and the Jainist communities, like I talked about before. Uh, but there's stories about the Buddha, right, Siddhartha, being fed honey following his six-year uh, asceticism lifestyle, right? So he was starving himself and was emaciated, and he decided, peace out, Girl Scout, this is not how you reach enlightenment, and he sits down by a um by a by a riverbed and this woman comes up to him and she gives him porridge that has been sweetened oh. with honey and he says that it's the most delicious thing that he's ever tasted and that it like fulfilled his body and nourished him in a way that he didn't realize food could nourish and uh, and that's when he begins to shift from this lifestyle of so much disconnection through shutting everything off with asceticism. So this highly restrictive act of looking for enlightenment to finding what um, Buddhists discuss as the middle way. So not too much indulgence, but also not so much restriction either. Yeah, we were, um, I'm currently in school and in one of my classes, I'm taking a religions, the world one. And one of the things that they talk about with Jainist monks is that they are completely cut off from like basically all of the joys of life Mm -hmm. and and this is coming from my very western perspective and i recognize that i'm limited because i do not seek a spiritual path like this Mm -hmm. but i don't understand how you find enlightenment through completely removing yourself from the things that make life worth living well and interestingly enough neither did siddhartha yeah (laughs) right and this moment of the sort of inception of Buddhism, right? This moment in which this the main character of Buddhism, this leader, because it's not a god, and it's not even really like the those are all Western terms, but this main leader, this first Buddha, if you will, uh, honey is the catalyst for him finding this new tradition and establishing this new tradition that millions of people follow. Yeah, 
Uh, so it's super uh, interesting connection to Shuhani. Um, it's once again used as a method of life bringing. Yeah, absolutely. And connection to this religious context. So it seems as though, right, Honey has this very close-knit relationship to religion and religiosity in, in human history. Uh, spirituality. Absolutely. Like, it's not just religious, it's spiritual. These are spiritual experiences people are having with Honey. Yeah. I get it because it's delicious. Well, it is delicious, but it also is just so much, like, plants are of the earth, but plants, especially in an agricultural age, we reap and sow, right? We don't because we're not farmers, but like humans are the ones who cultivate and plant and do the things. Honey is something that is just kind of given to us. Yeah. Right? I mean, sure, you, there's beekeeping and there's hunting, but there's something that's kind of not primitive, but something that's so base in a way in which humans can connect to the earth through it's honey. Primal, it is primal and it's sweet. Like, it would be one thing... I mean, could you imagine if honey tasted like potatoes? It would not have this history. No. Right? The idea that this is the only thing in the world, other than, like, certain fruits, but that can give you this full, coated mouth feel of candy. And the candy industry is huge now. So, like, yeah. it makes sense that it would have this sort of weight to it, this spirituality to it. And we can't discount, like, how... Easy calories were essential to our survival when we were hunter-gatherers and early agriculture. Absolutely. I mean, the idea of being able to, especially for women who are um, producing children, right? The idea of having honey on hand could be the difference between life and death for that mother and child. Yeah. Because it's calorie content. And it's it's building fat and it's, it's energy. I mean, the amount of energy that it takes to live a hunter gatherer lifestyle is a lot. And so just being able to have these quick energy boosters even is imperative. It's why our palates love sweet. Yeah. It's because sweet things are the things that have that really calorically dense. Mm -hmm. And it probably comes back to honey and fruits and going, okay, Honey is always sweet. Mm -hmm. That means that it is always good for us to eat. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, fruit, you have to wait for it to ripen. And if yep. it overripens, it's actually bad for you. Or it makes alcohol and, you know, win-win there. This is but true. Ultimately, we crave sweet because it's good for us. Yeah. In moderation. Well, yeah, everything, everything in moderation. moderation. Yes. Whatever. So even moving further east, right, I said we'd come back to China. So China has a pr prolific past with honey. Uh, it was used as a seasoning rather than a sweetener in their, uh, sorry, it was used as a sweetener and a seasoning. They would put it in ginger tea. Um, and this evidence of this is as early as the Han Dynasty. So 200 BCE to 220 CE, the Han Dynasty is massively long. And uh, so you have... Honey being used in this time period? Did you just realize that it spanned from BCE to CE? Yeah, it took me a second. Yeah, I yeah. Was like, massively long, and then I looked at it and I was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. massively long. Um, and although honey didn't take, uh, didn't make way into traditional Chinese main courses, it was hailed during the Tang Dynasty for its abundance and variation, uh, which we can discuss later. But really, this source says something about the different types of flavors from different hot like bees and honey hives so we kind of talked a little bit about that with like 
the clover versus wildflower. wildflower. versus orange blossom. Exactly. Things like that. Um, Mesoamerican culture is undoubtedly used honey. It was used to sweeten corn-based breads and drinks. It was that probably started as early as 9000 BCE, which again aligns perfectly with the agricultural revolution as it played out in the New World. So the New World's agricultural revolution happened, began a little bit later. So Old World is about um, 11,000 BCE, where New World took a, about another 2,000 years to get started. Uh, and that's really based on animals, to be very honest with you. There's like a huge. Um, Theory, I guess, that the reason why Europe was more, I'm air quoting, more developed in certain ways was because they had things like cows and horses and things that could be used for farms a whole lot easier than, I don't know if you've ever tried to strap a plow on a llama. (laughs) I don't think it would work. Um, But I don't think it, yeah, I don't either. So that's part of the reason why the agricultural revolution is is a bit slower to to happen in the new world is just because of the uh, the ability for them to literally plant in the ground. So things like that. But again, so honey being used as early as 9000 BCE, again, though, corresponding with the agricultural revolution in the new world, the same that way that it did in its old world counterparts is really exciting to see. Let's just put another check in the side for honeybees colonizing us as opposed to vice versa. Absolutely. Yeah, and because you see it on two different continents, two different sides of the earth that literally didn't know about each other for some time. So, But honey was the one thing that European colonizers in the 1500s were astonished by, right? Everything else, despite their constant representation of indigenous American cultures, is being underdeveloped. And that's a nice way to talk about how they said it. But they were highly impressed by the abundance and advancements of highly developed systems of beekeeping. They came to the New World and they're like, the fuck? Y'all just know how to do this and do it well. Yeah, So, but it's super interesting to see that not only is honey being eaten and consumed, but there was also an understanding of beekeeping that developed uh, entirely separate from the places in which we think about, you know, the Fertile Crescent and the beginnings of civilization. It's happening in the New World with indigenous American uh, cultures. In, it's happening everywhere. It's happening everywhere, exactly, like... The honeybee and our relationship with it really is just this, like, basic human, like, condition, really. Like, the same way that we are conditioned to want to mate, we are conditioned to want to eat honey and to tame the honeybee, which is odd. Like, all you need is, like, eat, sleep, sex, honey. (laughs) (laughs) So, Did did I mention to you when I worked at the synagogue that I half convinced... Uh, one of the security guards that I was a witch. <laughs> I don't. I don't think it's hard to do. It's not. But like the way I did it was. Was, was it this one? Yes. Nice. Okay. I just did a little sign language to try to figure out the name of the security guard that we were talking about. That's not hard to do. I can see him being convinced of that. It was so funny because <laughs> it was literally I'm just being myself. But every once in a while, it'd be really cold when I first got there in the morning, and I'd find a honeybee like on the pavement, just like cold and just sitting there like it's so cold I wait here for death and I was like oh come here little guy and I'd like scoop them up and put them on a flower and make sure they were good and then when I was out there and it was warm they're like be friend and they buzz around my head (laughs) while I was talking (laughs) and of course one of the people we worked with is allergic to them so anytime she'd come outside 
Got it. Sorry, more hand signals. Every time she'd come outside, she'd be like, oh my god, why are there so many bees? And would always go, oh, it's because Birdie's out here. They like her. <laughs> they like her. <laughs> they like she her She speaks to them. Uh, this is wild, because my youngest brought a bee to the table this morning. I didn't even think about this. He walked outside after leave- letting the cat outside, which is a whole different struggle with this child. He's two. Uh, but he came inside, and he, when he goes to give me something, he says, thank you, mommy, as opposed to, like, here or whatever, because I'll say, like, thank you to him when he gives mm-hmm. me things. And so he goes, thank you, mommy, B. And I didn't see it in his hand, and so I was just like, cool, thank you, mommy. Like, okay, like, you know, whatever, get inside, let's eat breakfast. And when he sat down, he literally opens his hand, and there's, like, a bee dying on my kitchen table at this Aww. point. Because he's not getting stung, so clearly there's no stinger. Yeah, and I had to scoop it up and, like, throw it away, which was Aww. not great. But he was really concerned about it. Like, he kept sta- staring at the the trash can and was like, Mama Bee, Mama Bee. And I was like, babe, it's, it's, it's dead. And so then he stood at the trash can for, I'm not kidding you, two minutes and said, be dead. Oh. Be dead. <laughs> so. He was just like, we're supposed to bury our dead. I mean, I buried it just underneath. In the trash can. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was buried under my coffee grounds. <laughs> There's worse places to go. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but again, so one seemingly popular use for honey in Europe uh, and the Mediterranean and Africa was for children, uh, which is also super strange that, again, not strange, but really interesting that it still encompasses all of these regions. Yeah. Uh, but they would make uh, a mixture of milk, honey, and melted butter. To create this, like, nutritious snack for children. I have a monastic cookbook. It's 12 months of monastery soups. I totally <laughs> like it. It's amazing. Uh, we want to eat like monks, but we don't want to live like monks. I'm so confused. Kind of. I love it. Uh, it's They're Benedictine monks, so they're not quite as... Um, Monkey? They're not quite as austere as Franciscan. Got it. Uh, Do they still have the really, really cool hairstyle, though? <laughs> Oh, you mean the wraparound? Yeah, yeah. I think he does have it in like the picture. On the nice, book. nice. Um, also, not a, the... also not a style I would recommend, but who yeah, knows? Okay. Everything comes back into style, so maybe we're going to be rocking the fourteen hundred style here pretty soon because nineteen nineties is slowly moving uh, and fading out. Thank God. Uh, Although it's making way for early two thousands, like Lizzie McGuire's fashion style, and oh, I'm I know. not the, the gonna... chunky sandals, the chunky plastic sandals. Yes. Uh, Big this we saw bright pink ones. I know. And uh, lavender. Yeah, I, was, I don't know. I'm like, we don't need uh, pastels. We don't need... Target is selling low-rise denim. Nobody needs low-rise denim. We didn't like the butt cracks then. We don't need them now. I don't need my muffin top becoming <laughs> a full-on, like, cake top, guys. Yeah, well, and here soon, the the pants for you are going to go all the way up to your boobs because you're going to have a big old belly in there. I know. Um, but I know. yeah, I'm just like, ugh, I'm like breaking out in hives every time I walk into Target because of the like early 2000s thing. Did you see the shimmer dresses today? <laughs> I did, Target? I did. The slip dresses? No, oh. thank you. Yes, but again, <laughs> back anyways, to honey. Anyways, there's this bread milk soup for children. Oh, nice. That's bread and milk and raisins and honey. And that's it. And Makes just- sense heated over the stove. I just thought it had the weirdest name in existence, but the fact that it's literally following an old ancient tradition. Yeah. Like a pan-continental tradition. Yeah, absolutely. Is wild to me. Which also I'm assuming that the melted butter would be kind of something that would be hit or miss, like clearly Europe and Mediterranean 
Europe for sure would have butter. Mediterranean, maybe not so much. In Africa, I don't know. I'd have to look into the Probably uses of- goat's butter. That Okay, yeah. Like, goats were much more common, and are much more common, to be cultivated there as agricultural yeah. livestock. Absolutely. So interesting. I never thought of goat's butter, but if you have goat milk, I suppose you can make butter. I mean, um, I always want to sing the theme song. Ghostbuster? Goat's butter! Don't sue us. We're the weirdest humans alive. I love this. Um, Okay, so although honey is undoubtedly our ancestral binder, uh, it fell out of favor in the 1600s with the mass production and trade of sugar. So this, of course, is due to European colonization. When they phased out honey in place of sugar, it was because of the slave trade, right? Like, those go hand in hand. So while you have, on one hand, the moral dilemma of honey being an animal byproduct and this religious sort of idea, sugar is not without a moral dilemma at all. No. And so, right, the sweetness of sugar also needs to be addressed that there's this bitterness of enslavement and genocide and ethnic cleansing that goes along with the cost of having that sweetness. One of the major reasons for the Atlantic slave trade and the triangle is I need sugar cane to keep my slaves busy and to make my molasses and my rum. And then it was, I need slaves to harvest my sugar cane. Mm-hmm. And, oh, they can't be from these indigenous tribes that we keep pulling from the north because they end up dying. Mm-hmm. And it's just, that created that terrible triangle. Absolutely. So, like, um, sugar and slavery go hand in hand, especially in the new world. Intrinsically together. And so, you know, Racism as we know it today, and sugar developed kind of the uses of sugar developed simultaneously. So it's interesting how honey with high nutrition value brings on the agricultural revolution, right? That develops with this sort of um, way, like life ways for humans, for better, for worse, right? And then you see sugar with its less nutritional value also presenting this new life way which is unfortunate because the life way is that of enslavement in a new way right there's always been slavery but not slavery like the trans not chattel slavery and an institutionalized type of slavery like it was during the transatlantic slave trade america only had to go to war with itself over one type of slavery and it wasn't indentured servitude it was not no Sugar also has uh, less nutritional value, right? And it, of course, its overuse leads to illnesses um, instead of the natural healing properties that our ancestors knew and loved about honey. So we kind of traded it in for something that not necessarily is a good trade-in. I don't want to demonize sugar entirely because it does have its place and it's still on the macronutrient level. It can still fulfill that same need as honey, but on micronutrient levels and things like the ability to help us ease allergies and the medicinal properties of honey. Sugar doesn't operate in the same realm. Yeah, no, it doesn't. And again, I'm not trying to say like you shouldn't eat sugar, right? Especially if you're living in the United States, good luck. Um, But (laughs) it's just that... A lot of juice has sugar in here. Well, true. But like just the idea of switching it out completely. Like sugar has a place, but maybe not... As every place that honey was able to go through. Um, So although honey has had to rival sugar um, and has 
perhaps fallen uh, from its moment of divine grace, honey never really went completely away. Um, in fact, here in the 21st century, honey has found kind of a new resurgence in all culinary categories and cultures. So it's in food and drinks. It's an added ingredient into sauces and glaze and sweet snacks and condiments. Um, even mints and breath fresheners are honey flavored, right? There's honey Altoids. Um, not a sponsor, but maybe you should be. And it still has religious relevance as um, sacrificial elements in Buddhism, the ones that are not opposed to honey use, I suppose. Um, and is regarded as a substance that represents the sweetness and sweetness for life and for things to come. So again, this comes back to um, Rosh Hashanah for Jews that we eat um, apples and honey on Rosh Hashanah to celebrate the new year, right? A new, a sweet new year. So you eat something sweet because Jews are nothing if not literal. And uh, we also eat it during Passover, right? So that's part of the other than matzah. You got to throw something on matzah to make it not taste like matzah. So honey is a pretty good. Chocolate if you're not put Nutella is a popular one. But, yeah, honey on matzah. Nutella is kosher for Passover? Yeah, it's just cocoa powder and hazelnuts. Nice. And high fructose corn syrup. Always. <laughs> well, yeah, because cocoa powder and hazelnuts are not going to be sweet on their own. No. No. Sugar. Be lots of sugar. So much sugar. <laughs> but honey ranges from this innocuous ingredient in children's cereal to uh, serving as the dominant dietary substance of certain cultures. So notably, the Mumbudi uh, people of Africa, they consume as much as two pounds of honey a day, and they still harvest it from the wild. How? How do you, like... Yeah. All right, honey, I'm going out to get our daily dose of honey. Wish me luck. Mm -hmm. I'll be back by sundown with... Eight pounds of honey for all of us. Oh, yeah. There is a documentary that I watched when I was in my anthropology class that if I can find it before we post this, I will put it in the show notes. Or better yet, you will, because I'm not doing show notes. Yeah. Because it's overwhelming. Um, but it follows along with this uh, this honey hunter, and you watch from this tribe. So someone goes into the Moody tribe in Africa and lives with them for a while as a way to do an ethnography, right, which we all know. We don't all know, but ethnography has a flaw to it intrinsically, because if you look at something, you automatically change it, whatever. But they go and live with this tribe because the tribe is living in pre-civilization, not uncivilized, but like pre-civilization style. So they're mm -hmm. living a very similar hunter-gatherer type lifestyle. And it's an interesting way for archaeologists or anthropologists, not archaeologists, we're not digging them up yet, but for anthropologists to try to look at what did our ancestors look like based on tribes that still live like that. And one of the things that they witnessed during this staycation in the Umbudi tribe was honey hunting. And this guy literally climbs up this tree with nothing but his own damn hands and feet with a machete and just reaches in and cuts some shit away and comes on down and they are on the ground underneath the tree where all the bees are eating the honey, like in front of these bees, like come this at me, bro. Now. Come at me, bro. <laughs> Look at me. I have the honey now. But yeah, I mean, and it's wild to see. And like the fact that this is still, um, you know, circa 2011, I believe when the book that wrote this said this, right. Th this is still a practice, right. This, this honey hunting and two pounds of, of honey a day. This sounds wild, or it sounds wild to me, that there are entire cultures out there that looked at the agricultural revolution and said, mm, no thanks. And oddly enough, they are not patriarchal. 
What? Yeah, the Mbuni tribe is very matriarchal. And I think that there's this whole, like, currency based on yams. But don't, don't, uh, don't quote me on that. I know that there is, um, um, a tribe that yams are their currency. And you will see, like, during yam harvest, they have this, like, huge, like, pile of yams. Um, but it's also, um, there's notions of reciprocity and sharing and the idea that what you bring is not just yours. It's, it's forever. Like it's a communal sort of space. So, and that doesn't exist in agricultural spaces. Often it's, you know, my food, my farm, my things, and not to, and that's even pre-capitalism, which is something that we could talk about for forever. So we won't. We could. We won't. Uh, but in developed countries, right, um, honey often comes to us at a higher premium than sugar um, or even high fructose corn syrup. But that reveals a more purpose. So it's revealed a more purposeful use for honey, right? In a world where we can choose our sweetener, we can also choose how much we spend on that. And so because honey costs a bit more, people will use it more um, sort of uh, with intent as opposed to sort of throwing it in everything. Um, but honey then, because of this higher premium, kind of feels like it has a taste of privilege that's tied to it in a way that it hadn't before. So again, capitalism sort of corrupting the now beauty. it's an indulgence as opposed to an essential part of the human experience. Yeah, absolutely. So particularly in the cases of more artisanal honey, as opposed to your like mass-produced supermarket honey in the bear containers, right? Nothing, not to hate on bear honey, but... Right. The the smaller batch honeys or the higher quality honey is going to come at a much higher premium than the honey that's in a bear container. Right. That's a much more um, affordable style honey. Yeah. So um, artisanal honey has seen a revival with the appreciation of honey varieties. So that same thing that the Tang Dynasty was talking about earlier. So the varieties are based on the diet of the bee. So different pollen renders different flavors of honey. And these flavors are only notable really when the honey is eaten raw or unpasteurized. And so once you start cooking it down, it doesn't really do much. You can't really taste the the sort of varietals there. But the idea, right, again, that bees who are being um, kept on a diet of wildflower is going to have a different, um, a slightly different taste of honey than bees who are kept on thyme. Yeah. Uh, that has a wildly different, and also thyme honey was really, really popular in Britain and actually became like the, um, the style of honey that was indicative to this, um, honey aisles was, was thyme honey. I need to try that. Sounds amazing. And I love honey. Yeah. I don't want to try rosemary honey, but thyme no. honey's, I don't like rosemary. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Again. He says we're going to put rosemary in today's ancient. Absolutely. I'll, I'll, yeah. For sure. I'm going to eat it. I'll just make note of, yeah, that's in there. (laughs) Um, Uh, Yes, it exists. Moving on. uh, But yeah, so and then, so varietals can range not just from the things that I talked about, the wildflower or orange blossom, um, but eucalyptus, coffee, heather, sage, clover, buckwheat, um, acacia, a ton of different things. So depending upon the region that you are you know, beekeeping, uh, you really, there's like a slightly nuanced flavor indicative of the bee's menu. I really, really hope that there's some version of like the olive oil taste testers we talked about in episode <laughs> one for honey, where they do the little like. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> and of course, I don't have the answer for that. But yeah, I, that would be, it would make sense that you would have some sort of quality control, I suppose. Um, there's a 
there's an aficionado of everything, so why not be an aficionado of honey? There's an aficionado of socks. <laughs> like, yeah, there's somebody who is a honey taste expert out there. Yeah. Um, and so honey today uh, really has seen that revival, but it also comes with a consciousness of the honeybee. Um, and the bee has an experience, has experienced a number of ills, which we are sort of familiar with, right? There's a ton of people who have like saved the bees shirts and logos or, you know, stickers, things out there. We, this is sort of a new recognition of if we're going to eat honey, we, we definitely need to think about the honeybee, not just in terms of honey, but also in terms of pollination. Save the bees, guys save them. Absolutely. But so some of these things were, there were new pesticides that not only affected the plants, but would harm bees as well. So the pesticides were something that was put into genetically modified or genetically engineered plants to make them resistant. So it's not something that's being sprayed on them. Literally, the plant itself has a pesticide in it. And when the bees would eat the pollen of that plant, it would harm them. It would kill them. So We've created poisonous plants. Yay. Yeah. I mean, we've always had poisonous plants, but now we're actively hurting honeybees with them. This must end. Yes. Well, it, it does at some point. A few sentences down, you'll see. Oh, yay. <laughs> um, and the beekeepers have seen seemingly unexplainable declines in honeybee population, known as colony collapse disorder. Um, they have no idea why this is happening. It's just all of a sudden half of their colony is dead. And so bee transportation for pollination also threatens the bee as well as destruction of the wild bee habitats due to natural um, harvesting methods. So all of these things are not really in favor of the bee. So, right, so what does this mean? Is like the end of our sweet treat? No. Like I said, there's a lot of organizations that are out there trying to save bees. They're emerging to help bee populations. Some of the more harmful pesticides have been banned, so they're no longer able to uh, genetically modify those into the plants or even... Um, Spray them, on. Spray them onto the plants. And along with the desire to shift away from the morally problematic sugar and back to a substance that is more um, sort of originally bound uh, to the earth, um, honey and the honeybee have a pretty bright future. Woohoo! Or sweet future, <laughs> I suppose. But, but yeah, so you, we start to see, right, the more that people want it, the more that people will protect it. So, and we've clearly have wanted honey since we... Since forever. Forever. So... Uh, since we were still hairy and on the savannah, most likely. And we still want honey even in the face of sugar. Yeah. Right? There's still a space for it in our culinary milieu that we know that sugar just can't really compete on the same level for certain things. It doesn't have the same... No, it doesn't. Um, so we will pause, but I'll tell you... So we're making the ancient honey cakes from Apicius. Um, we'll see how that turns out, because literally he just says, like, take some, some stuff and mix it with some milk and heat it up with some honey. So we'll see how that happens. I might have to find sort of a interpretation yeah like a little bit of a modern interpretation that has a little more in it um kind of the way we're going to be doing next time with garlic yes yes um and then uh we're going to compare that with a much more um modern honey cake recipe that will have some leavening and and things like that that would be pretty widely available right and like you google i'm literally going to google a recipe and find a popular one and sort of see how it goes it's gonna be great and then we'll taste test them I will tell you how delicious the ancient 
Romans and Greeks food was. I mean, they were uh, a country of excess and decadence, so... This is true. And it, it worked out okay for olive oil, so I can't imagine honey being horrific. So, we'll come back to that. Alright. Talk to you guys soon. So, through the magic of podcasting, it's been three seconds, maybe, for you all, and it's been an hour for us. And we have two honey cakes, sort of. Cake is a very strong word. Yeah. So, uh, we will put the actual recipes that we used uh, in the show notes. Uh, but for... <laughs> For the ancient one, I did sort of a mixture of two that were in Apicius's cookbook. And so one calls for cooked spelt, and the other one has like milk. And so they're slightly different, but we used barley. So we cooked up some barley and kind of mashed it, and then put all of the wet ingredients together and popped it in the oven. And it's something. It kind of looks like, like solid. Oatmeal. Solid's also kind of a... That's a very loose term. It's, it's pretty loose. But it doesn't look, It doesn't smell bad. It does not smell bad. And then we have the modern one that's definitely like... It literally looks like a cornbread. That consistency is cornbread consistency. It really is. Like the way it holds together, the way it crumbs. Yeah, everything about that. If you didn't tell me that it wasn't made from cornmeal, I... Just by looking at it, I wouldn't know. So I think I'm going to try the modern one first, because I feel like I am a little more prepared for what that's going to taste like. Yeah, that's fair. And then I want to try the ancient one and be wildly surprised. (laughs) Yeah, let's do the modern first. Okay. And this is drizzled with the orange cardamom honey we made the last time. Yes. So I'm going to mute my microphone so you don't hear me chomp. So I can see why... They said to do the syrup into it because mm-hmm. it's a pretty dry cake, but we didn't do that. We did not. So we just drizzled over the top. It's not bad dry, though. Like, it's not like can't eat, can't talk dry. It's not a Popeye's biscuit. No, but I can see why you would want to put some sort of like syrup into it the way that the recipe calls for. And you'll see that in the recipe. We didn't do that. We just uh, we we took it out of the oven and we drizzled honey over the top. Which is we, also very good. Yeah. It's got, like, a, a cornmeal consistency, too. I'm surprised there's no cornmeal in it. It feels like cornmeal. It tastes a little bit like cornbread, too. But that's because I make my, like, puffy cornbread like this with honey. Yeah. Okay, let's try this. Um, I don't know how you would have... I mean, I guess... So the one that says, like, how to keep them longer, mm-hmm. you use, quote, what the Greeks called yeast... And so I'm assuming that that's the sort of hardened uh, honey cake that we would see in, like, um, Virgil's Aeneid and things like that, or something that held more, because I can't imagine traveling with this. This is Unless we didn't cook it long enough. Well, there's no timers, or... Literally. There's no directions at all. It just says, like, here's your things and make it happen. Apply heat. Good enough. That shouldn't be good. There's nothing about this recipe that would imply that it's good. And yet... It's better than the modern. It is. How is it better than the modern? Guys, go on our Instagram at History Between Bites Pod and look at these pictures. It should not be better. It is the ugliest thing alive. It's so good. It's crumbling and falling apart because it's literally made with barley, and barley is not flour. It's 
spongy, and it's well-seasoned. I mean, thanks to yours, truly. But still, it's good. This should not <laughs> An oatmeal cake should not be this good. Like, I want to make this for breakfast. Like, this is, it seems like a breakfast food. Yeah. Mostly because it reminds us of oatmeal. It's spiced better than the modern one. Yeah. Because the modern one didn't have anything in it. It was like honey, butter, and a pinch of zest, which I gave a whole lot more. <laughs> there wasn't even salt in it. No, that's not true. There was salt. I was going to say, there was a half teaspoon. Yeah. I don't I don't know what to do about this right now. This is so good. It's the Manischewitz. <laughs> when in doubt, it's the wine. I keep going back to the ancient one. I haven't even tried a second bite of the modern. Yeah, no, I'm probably going to finish the ancient and maybe finish the modern, but I'm hungry, so. <laughs> that is wild. I really want to make this in, like, in a breakfast form. Maybe yeah. not with rosemary, which is also weirdly good in this. I don't taste the rosemary in a way that I usually taste it in more savory dishes. Because, like, I don't like rosemary at Thanksgiving. I think it's overdone for Thanksgiving. I think people go crazy with rosemary and, like, stuffing and in their bird. I'm surprised you like my bird and stuffing because there's a ton of fresh rosemary. Yeah. And, like, I don't like cocktails that have, like, sprigs of rosemary. I'm like, it's, it's, a, bit, it's a bit much. I just think that's overrated. It is true. We just drink gin. Like, if, you, if you want that sort of spicy, earthy tree flavor in your drink, just order it with gin. But I, again, not here to talk about spirits. This is yeah. wild. I don't understand how this works. There's no reason it should. There's no reason it should. The texture is so fun. It is. Because there's a sponginess to it, but then there's like a solidness to it. And then you get the crunch of the raw almonds over the top. And you don't even like almonds and you're over here eating it. It's wild. We did make it with cinnamon. And because it says crushed pepper. Now in the ancient world, pepper would have just been any sort of... Uh, spice or seasoning that you had available to you. I believe that one of the predominant ones would have been like cardamom uh, versus a cinnamon, but I mean... This would also be really good with cardamom. Yeah, but I think that the cinnamon plays really well into the barley as well. We should do like a this flavor palette and like overnight oats. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and then we'll save the uh, the honey cake modern recipe for like I don't know, without a drizzle of honey or with a lighter drizzle of honey, it really could go well with, like, meats. Mm -hmm. It could go really well with, like, a braised beef. Oh. Yeah. Especially at that point if you incorporated some of the rosemary into the modern. So, like, <laughs> a not cornmeal cornmeal. Yeah. Neat. Also, the sides got really dark. Like Yes, they did. That has to be the honey. Yeah. Like, the caramelization of the honey. Even the Bernie bits are good, though, on the modern one. They are good. I think the Bernie bits are better than the non-Bernie bits, but that's just me. I also like the edges of a brownie. I love brownie edges. <laughs> okay. I want I want one of those pans that only makes brownie mm -hmm. edges. Mm -hmm. That's shaped like the snake. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, honey. I don't know where our brains have been today. We've been on, like, everything but honey. Not the fuck here. <laughs> <laughs> So honey cakes are not bad. Uh, we will definitely not be making cake next time. No, we are going to be making stew. Nice. Which will be nice for the husbands who have to try all of these with us. Because I think that, I know at least one of our husbands is over cake. Yeah. 
Oh, God, so much. He goes, honey, when when I tell him we're doing honey cakes, he goes, honey, can you maybe not do cake next time? <laughs> and I said, no, we're going to do soup next time. Yeah. Is is uh, Mr. Birdie also slightly averse to cake the way I am? A little bit. That's hilarious. I, like, it's so funny that you... I married, married you. You married me. Sort of. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. He and I are. He likes pie. I like pie, too. Yeah. No, pie is a superior dessert. It is. On, yeah. like, every conceivable level. And I will still take that over ice cream, too. Not to mention the newly developed lactose intolerance. Good to know. Yeah, yeah. Good to know. I can eat it in stuff, but I can't just, like, have a glass of milk or a milkshake, for instance, because that was brutal. Yeah, but I did drink, I did make a, uh, my coffee, I made a latte yesterday with like the lactose-free milk and it seemed to be fine. Oh, good. Yeah, we pretty much only use lactose-free milk here. Nice. Um, okay, so last and final thoughts about honey. Oh, funny, funny little aside. When I was at the store with my daughter picking out honey, she, so funny, I'm so strange. So we're in the store, I tell her, I ask her which one she wants, she picks the wildflower one, I hand it to her. And I literally said to her, I said, you know what's really exciting about honey? She says, what? And I said, honey is probably one of the oldest culinary foods that we ate, and all of us ate it together, and it's so amazing, and it connects us to the earth, and it's super old, and all of our ancestors for forever ate honey. And she was looking at me like, great, cool, fine, like she's listening, and she's learning, and she's four, so it's like she only gets it so far. But the lady next to me... Listening to me tell my four-year-old a brief history of honey literally looked at me like I was the craziest person in the world and then didn't buy honey. Oh my god. (laughs) I'm like, really? This was also for your benefit, ma'am. You didn't have to get the sugar. You didn't need the sugar. I get get a lot of looks about the way that I talk to my children in public because I talk to them like this. You talk to them like people? Yeah, like grown humans. Even if they're not going to understand, it's totally fine. They'll get there. But she needs to know that when we eat honey, there's a story to it. There's a story to all of our food. I said that last time. But, like, honey can connect us in ways that other foods can't. Yeah. And it's uh, it's a beautiful thing. It's really cool. It's, it's neat to me that we have these ancient things that are still very much a part of our modern life. Yeah. And it'll be interesting as we move through these ingredients to find things that maybe don't have as old sort of recipes attached to them or old uses for them. I know that when we get to my next episode, which is tomatoes, Mm -hmm. that it might be a little tricky to find something older than, you know, colonialism to really highlight a dish using tomatoes because tomatoes are a new world fruit, fruit. And, uh, you know, the New World didn't have the same sort of record-keeping processes, so no one was writing recipes down. We could make ketchup. We could make ketchup. It's one of the older tomato recipes that's actually documented. If we're going to make ketchup from scratch, which is amazing, did I tell you that I used to be called the ketchup queen when I was a child? No. (laughs) Well, yeah, so I used to put ketchup on everything, and my mom called me the ketchup queen. It's hilarious. That's why I joke that, like, that's where my children got it. Because Topher hates. Sorry. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Sam hates condiments other than, like, 
barbecue sauce on occasion. Oh my god, he's so um, Steak sauce. And <laughs> buffalo sauce. How English could he possibly be? Well, he doesn't like gravy, though. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> he does not, well, okay. <laughs> Jail. Jail for 1,000 years. He doesn't like brown gravy. He's okay with, like, breakfasty gravy. That's so, white gravy. Okay. Huh? That's still not okay. It's not okay. They both have their place, and they're both amazing. How can you not like gravy? Yeah, I don't know. I think that the one of the most delicious things in the world is taking Hawaiian sweet bread and dipping it into some cheap-ass brown turkey gravy. It's delicious, and it's amazing, and it will be on the uh, pregnancy-to-eat list, I'm sure, because it's so good, and it's salty, and it's, it's all the things. But yeah, no, he doesn't like it. The moist maker sandwich for requires gravy yes Uh, (laughs) but no yeah he doesn't and so like the kids love condiments like my kids put ketchup and mustard on everything even the youngest who's two knows that like ketchup and mustard go on hot dogs Mm -hmm. and i do feed them hot dogs of course you should yeah hebrew nationals they're kosher there you go (laughs) as long as they have that little k marking on them yeah or the u the u will take the u will be fine yeah I don't know, I feel like, I feel like honey is, I feel like we keep getting off track with honey because it's so simple. And it's everywhere. It is. We can connect that to almost anything. Like, even our condiments. Yeah. Like, honey mustard is Mr. Birdie's absolute favorite thing in the entire world. There's a recipe for honey mustard in Apicius's book. I'll send it to you. Yeah, yeah. And I can't remember how they make it, but it's, yeah, honey mustard. So I'm going to end up making like, Mr. Birdie's sausage balls for him, like, this weekend. Nice. And Apicius's honey mustard. That sounds... see a, how he likes it. Yeah. I am on the fence about honey mustard. Some of them are really good, and some of them taste like honey mustard with Dijon kind of mustard. It has a little, like, horseradishy sort of flavor to it. Nah. Not, not into it. No, I make mine with um, a little bit of barbecue sauce. Like, oh, a nice. teaspoon of barbecue sauce to every half cup of mustard. Okay. And then, like, a third of a cup of honey. We should we should get that really bougie mustard that's basically just like barely ground up mustard where like you can still see all the seeds in it. You mean like I have in my fridge? Of course you have it in your fridge. I like mustard. So do I, but I'm a yellow deli mustard kind of gal. I mean, also yes. Oh, that's the other thing. Here's a disgusting fact about what Sam used to eat when she was a child: mustard sandwiches. Why is that disgusting? (laughs) It's not. It's really good. I used to eat... Uh, just two pieces of bread and mustard in between. Here's my theory. It can't be gross, because what the hell do you order with your pretzel? Mustard. It's mustard and bread. Get off my case. <laughs> mustard, bread, salt. Done. Easy peasy. Do it with some sourdough. Oh. Done. I used to eat pimento loaf with ketchup on one side and mustard on the other in between two slices of white bread. Somehow I would sauce the meat (laughs) not the bread i would like sauce the side of the meat with mustard slap Slap it on on the the bread catch up the other side slap on the top of the bread that's hilarious and eat that i worked at a deli for a brief second um at a large undisclosed grocery chain that may or may not start with al and um cutting pimento loaf was not attractive no. It's 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 weird. Uh-huh. Pimento loaf is weird. 
But it's somehow smelled really good, but that's because I like olives, right? It's like olive pimento stuff in there, yeah. Um, okay, so Honey lets us go on rants because Honey's in everything and it's so very simple and it can take us on to all the tangents because it's imbued in everything. Ancient Honey Cake, I don't know how it works, but it works. It worked really well. It's delicious. It's breakfast. It's breakfast. And it's filling because I had like a little piece and I'm full. It kind of is reminiscent of like a bread pudding. Yeah. Yeah. Like I could see like this being the sort of ancestor of bread pudding. Especially with like the pearled barley as opposed to like barley flour. Yeah. Although there is also French toast recipe in Apicius's, which is essentially bread pudding. I mean, depending upon how you do it. I don't do it where I soak it overnight. That's weird. But people soak it overnight? Yeah, because you have like really, really, really dry bread. I don't no no. We we dip we dip and go. <laughs> I'll make French toast for you one day. Okay. Um okie dokie. So honey was fun. Honey was fun. We could have done a whole lot more with honey, but no, we're good. It'll come back up. Honey's gonna be in other things, so we'll just know and we'll take a little nod to it and say, Oh thanks. I mean when we do the condiments section for sure is going to be in there. Yeah, well, barbecue sauce. One of the main sweeteners in barbecue sauce, if you're not using brown sugar, is going to be honey. The one I just made for ribs was molasses and honey as your major sweeteners. Interesting. It was good. Yeah, sounds delicious. Um, okay, so what are we plugging here? So we have <laughs> we have our Patreon, right? Yes. Which is History Between Bites at patreon.com. Yep. And so jump onto that. We are on social media at History Between Bites on Facebook or History Between Bites Pod on Instagram. Uh, yeah, find us wherever it is that you find your podcasts. We'll eventually have a YouTube. We will. Hearth, hearth or Table will be up shortly. Will you actually get to see us cooking some of these things as opposed to just taste testing over our mics? But yeah, so thanks for listening and um, stay hungry for history. Reserved.